Let me invite you to turn to Job chapter 28 this morning. Job chapter 28. If you have been following along in our study in Job, you probably have asked the question, what is the true nature of wisdom? We've had these three cycles of speeches where Job's friends try to shed light on what is going on and Job tries to respond each time. And sometimes it's hard to to get down to what the real truth is, where the real wisdom is. It seems as if wisdom is elusive. Who has it? Who really has the wisdom? Which one of these people do we look to for wisdom? Job would admit that he doesn't have a firm grasp on it. Job's three friends claim to have figured it all out. They say that they have wisdom. But we know from God's assessment of them in chapter 42, verse 7, that their uh, evaluation of wisdom was not exactly correct. And so these four wise men, these four men who gave themselves to the study of the Scripture and to knowing God, if they struggle in the depths of wisdom to try to figure out what it is, then how can we ever have hope to know what, what real wisdom is? Is How can we ever make sense of this life? Part of the struggle is that there are many things out there, many people out there, that proclaim that they have wisdom. They falsely proclaim that they have wisdom. Some really do have wisdom. Others do not. It would be like driving down Woodward at sunset and every sign that you passed read wisdom. They're all in different shapes and sizes and colors. How do you know which one to go to? Where do we turn for real wisdom? And this is what it's like to go through life. Foolishness cries out all around us. But where do we find wisdom? True wisdom is calling out as well according to Proverbs. Where is wisdom and how do we attain it? What we're going to find in Job chapter chapters 28 through 31 is that human wisdom the wisdom that can only come from God is to fear God and to turn away from evil Job's friends had spent much time trying to offer wisdom and now Job uses chapter 28 to show them how difficult it really is to find wisdom and so in chapter 28 he shows the infinite value of wisdom he begins in verses 1 through 11 by saying that you can't unearth wisdom You can't dig down to the depths of the earth and find it. He uses the word gold seven times in this chapter to show how precious gold is. Look at verses 1 and 2. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from the rock. So if there's these precious metals deep in the earth, notice how far people will go to try to get them. Verse 3. Man puts an end to darkness, and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock and gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro from men. This is talking about the ancient mining mining, uh, duties that people would take on. They would know that as a result... of knowing that there were precious stones deep below this rock, they would mine to get there. And so they would 
they would put themselves into danger in order to go after this precious metal, this gold or the silver or precious stone. They're willing to risk their lives. That's why it says in verse 4 that they, they, they sink into the shaft and they hang and they swing on places that you wouldn't normally do that in order to get these precious metals. Verses 6-8 through eight tells us that they go through uncharted territory. Its rocks are the source of sapphires and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. These men who are seeking after these precious metals go to great depths. In fact, they go to places where no animal has ever seen. No bird of prey could ever get down there into those mines. No no hawk or eagle has ever taken sight of it. And this speaks to the intelligence of human over humans over animals. No animal is able to even break away this rock in order to get to this precious metal. It's speaking to the superiority of humans trying to dig down how industrious they are. See that in verse 11, that He dams up the streams from flowing and what is hidden He brings out to the light. It is a major accomplishment for a human to be able to dig down and, and gather these precious metals. And so Job says that, that men spend, they spend time, time and resources and even they risk their lives in order to search for these precious metals. Now, he's not condemning that thing. If, if you are a miner or if one of your family members was a miner, he's not saying don't do that. He's simply saying it is a great feat for them to be able to do that. He's trying to show how intelligent man really is. But, even with all that intelligence, man cannot unearth wisdom. And that's what he talks about in verses 12-19. through 19. They may be able to go down to the deepest depths and get some metals that no other animal would even be able to know about or see, but they can't unearth wisdom. Verse 13, man does not know its value. Uh, let me start with verse 12 because notice the question that he asks. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? There are great, there are great amounts of things that, that men know about, but where can wisdom be found is what Job is asking. They can do great things, but where is wisdom found? And now he goes on in verses 13 through 19 and talks about where it cannot be found. Verse 13 Man does not know its, that is, wisdom's value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. You can't find wisdom in the earth, Job says. And you can't buy it from the earth, verse 15. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire, Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Wisdom cannot be found, verses 13 and 14, in the earth, nor can it be bought. It doesn't matter how much treasure you have. You couldn't take 
and empty your wallet or your bank account or your portfolio in exchange for wisdom. You can't do it. It doesn't matter if you have the most precious metals on the earth. It isn't in the earth. And even if it were, you couldn't buy it. Well then, where can it be found? Where does it come from? That's what he asks again in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? He asks this now two times, verse 12 and verse 20. Where does it come from? Okay, They've been going around in circles in these speeches trying to figure out where the source of wisdom is. What's really happening in Job's life? Is he being treated justly or is he being treated unjustly? Is there a category for innocent suffering? What's going on? Where does wisdom come from? Verse, verses 20 through 22, Job says, You can't find it. Verse 21 Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, With our ears we have heard a report of it. So, verse 21 is talking about if the birds were to try to, to get a view of the, these precious metals, they wouldn't be able to see it. It's hidden from their eyes. In the same way, wisdom is hidden from us. We are like the birds trying to see down into the, the depths of the earth to see these precious metals. We can't see wisdom. We can't unearth it. It's hidden from us. Well, then what kind of hope is there in that kind of message? What kind of hope is that, Job? Well, he's not finished. Let's see where the, the source of wisdom is. Verses 23 through 28. Wisdom is in God. God understands its way, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when He set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then He saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man He said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Here's what Job is trying to say. You can't unearth wisdom. You can't buy wisdom. Wisdom cannot be found. It comes from God. Only God knows and understands wisdom. Only God knows how it's acquired. He knows where it is and how to get it. Is there anything on earth that God doesn't know about? Is there any limit to God's knowledge? God's wisdom, His knowledge is limitless. That's why we call Him omniscient. That He is all-knowing. See that in verse 24. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Nothing is hidden from God. Psalm 147.4 says that he counts the stars and he knows them all by name. How many of us could do that? We count the stars. Could we put names to all of them? God does. And God knows. And it isn't the fact that God simply possesses wisdom... It is that God is wisdom. It's not that He just has it and He can give it to other people. He is wisdom. He is the source of wisdom. He is called wisdom. And God will confirm that wisdom is only sourced in Him in chapters 38-41 through 41 when God speaks. We'll see this in two weeks. 
when, when God speaks from a whirlwind or from a storm and He says, Who are you to darken my counsel with words without knowledge, Job? Don't try to impugn my justice. Don't try to, to discredit me. I know all things. And then He begins with, by inundating Job with all these questions. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were made? Don't question me, Job. Notice what God calls a person to do. If we cannot search for wisdom, if we cannot find it in the depths of the earth, if we can't buy it, notice verse 28, what God calls us to do. And to man, He said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So, in this discussion that Job is having with his friends, where is wisdom? What I began with was, in this world where everybody's shouting out, I have wisdom, I am wisdom, come to me. Here's what God says. And this is God speaking, by the way. Do you notice that in verse 28? And to man, he, God, said, so God said this, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. If we want to have wisdom, if we want to, 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 um, to be able to derive wisdom from God, we need to fear Him and avoid evil. All the wisdom that we have is derived wisdom. It's nothing, none of it's sourced in us. We're not special of our own accord in any way. It's all derived from God. and It must be given to us by God. Notice how Job is described in chapter 1, verse 1. It's interesting because God, or Job says here that God had said that to have wisdom is to fear God. So for a human... For us, we need to fear God and turn from evil. Notice how he is described in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then notice how God describes him in verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Turn to chapter 2, verse 3. God says it again when Satan comes into his presence a second time. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. If human wisdom is to fear God and to turn from evil, then Job is a wise man. According to both himself, okay, not in... Uh, not in a proud way, but, but according to himself and to God, twice God says it, and the author of Job says it. That Job was a man who feared God and turned from evil. See, he was a wise man. And so what Job does now in chapters 29-31 through 31 is he shows how he has been wise. He's trying to prove to these three friends that he has done nothing deserving of this suffering that he is experiencing right now. He's trying to prove that and he's trying to show now, okay, listen, wisdom is sourced in God and and for us, wisdom is fearing Him and turning from evil. Let me show you how I've done that. He begins by talking about, in chapter 29, the previous joys that he once experienced. His previous joys. He talks about his blessing, verses 2 through 6. His honor, verses 7 through 10. His benevolence. His love for other people. Look at verse 14. 
of chapter 29. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. Job is saying, with all the wealth and the resources that I had, I did not use it on myself. I used it on other people. I became eyes for the blind. I became feet for the lame. I helped them out. I became the father of the needy. I I investigated a case to make sure that a person was not wrongly accused. And Job even goes so far as to go up against these ravaging creatures who are trying to take the life or suck the life out of these poor people. Look at verse 17. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. So you can imagine a poor person being having all their finances or their resources being sucked out of them by a rich, uh, arrogant person. And Job says, I went up against that ravaging creature who had that prey in his mouth and I took it right from him. That's how much I cared about the people who were less fortunate than I. Job thought that he would die peacefully, verses 18 through 20. He talks about his honor in verses 21 through 25. He says, This is the way it used to be. But then things changed, chapter 30. He moves from the past joys that he once experienced now to the current miseries that he now experiences in chapter 30. He was afflicted in two ways. Verses 1 through 15 show that he was afflicted externally by his mockers. Look at verse 1. But now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flocks. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. And then verse 9, And now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me. And they do not refrain from spitting at my face because he has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off the bridle before me. On the right hand, their brood arises. They thrust, up si- uh, they thrust aside my feet and build up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They profit from my destruction. No one restrains them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the tempest they roll on. Job was afflicted externally by his mockers. Where before he used to receive honor, Now he receives mocking. And so there's terror all around him. Verse 15, Terrors are turned against me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Job's current misery includes his external affliction from his mockers, but also his internal affliction, this illness that he's experiencing in verses 16 through 31. Verse 16, And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire. And I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride and you dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. Before he thought he would die in peace, 
be able to leave a, a vibrant, healthy family behind, and now he believes that he will die in agony. And so instead of gladness, Job has despair. Look at verse 31. Therefore my harp is turned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of those who weep. So, remember, Job's point in all of this is to show what true wisdom is and how he has tried his best to pursue it by fearing God and turning from evil. He begins with these first two chapters, 29 and 30, by showing where he was and where he now is. And now he uses chapter 31 to proclaim his innocence. He makes a final plea for his innocence. This is the last time that Job gives a speech in this book. Now, he does go on later to, re- to repent before God two times. We'll see when God talks to him. But, but this is the last time that he speaks openly to his friends. It's recorded for us. Notice the structure of his argument. It seems as if he's making a case before the judge. Look at verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Or as other translations say, I sign my defense. He's saying, I deny all these sins that you've, you've attributed to me, talking about the three friends. You say that I've done all these things, but I deny them. I will sign my name to it. So he shows his purity before God. First, he shows his purity in thought. Verses 1-4 through four. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does He not see my ways and number all my steps? And then He goes on in verses 5 and following and He shows all these ways in which He has not been guilty. And here's how He, he lays it out in the next several sections. He says, if I were guilty in this, then let something happen to me. Look at verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, then do what, Job? Verse 6, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Verse 8, let me sow and another eat and let my crops be uprooted. So in this in the first four verses, he says, I have been pure in thought. Verses 5-8, through eight, I've been pure in my commerce. Verses 9-12, through 12, I've been pure in my marriage. Verses 13-15, through 15, I've been pure in my, uh, my affairs with the slaves. In other words, in, in the way that I've treated slaves, I, slaves, I've cared for them. In verses 16-23, through 23, in His compassion for the poor. Verses 24-28, through 28, in His power. He's not dependent on money or resources. He's not thirsty for more power. Verses 29-31 and His dealings with enemies. And notice verse 32 in His lifestyle. The alien has not lodged outside for I have opened my doors to the traveler. He cares for strangers. And he's not swayed by public opinion. Verse 33, Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors. I'm not fearful of the crowds. I'm not trying to live to please the crowds. I've been pure in all these ways. In verses 38-40, through he's been pure in business. 
He doesn't use his business in order to gain more wealth for himself in, a, in an illegal way. So notice what he does in verses 35 through 37. This is kind of the heart of his plea. And this is where Job begins to cross the line. Here he demands an answer from God. Okay, remember, he's trying to, to lay out his case before his friends, but he often turns to God and says, What have you done to me? Where have I deserved this? And so here in verse 35, he says, I demand an answer. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job says, if I were standing in the courtroom of God, I would lay out my case before Him and I would require Him to respond so that He would tell me why I am experiencing what I am experiencing right now. This internal affliction of illness and this external affliction of mocking. I would tell Him and He would have to give me an answer. He calls God here His accuser. It's not the same uh, type of... Uh, it's, it's actually stated adversary. See there at the, bottom of, or at the end of verse 35. And the indictment which my adversary or accuser, other translations, has written. It's not the same word that's used of Satan. It's a different word. It's referring to God that He has laid these charges against me and He has poured out His, his uh, this suffering upon me. If only he would come and have a conversation with me, then I would tell him that I am innocent. Now, one thing that's amazing about Job in the midst of his trials is that he's so focused on God. The temptation that we have when we come to difficult trials in our lives is to turn away from God and not want to hear him speak. But what we can commend Job for is that he desires to hear God speak. Now, he does cross the line in some cases and, and tries to, to demand that God answer him. But we should commend him because he, he desires to hear God speak. And, and earlier we saw that, that he desired God's words more than his daily food. How many of us could say that? How many could, of us could say that we desire God's Word more than some of our possessions or our job? We hold some of these things in this life so tightly that we don't care as much about God's words. If I have time, then, then that's great. But Job says, I desire God's Word more than my daily food, more than His necessities, more than the life that He had, the breath in His lungs. And so we should commend Him for wanting to turn to God in times of trial and not away from him. That Job was willing to pursue God even when it hurts. Well, let me ask a few questions as we conclude in, in, in our thinking on these speeches by Job. The first question is this. If wisdom is so elusive, then how do we pursue it? If wisdom is so elusive, if we can't unearth it, if we can't buy it, where do we get this wisdom? Turn to, to Proverbs chapter 3 with me. Proverbs chapter 3, it's 
another one of the wisdom books that we have in our Old Testament. Much of it was written by Solomon. The, the passage that we'll look at here in chapter 3 is also written by him. And here we see a close association between God's wisdom and God's Word. They seem interchangeable. Look at verse 19 of Proverbs chapter 3. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies dripped, uh, the skies dripped with dew. So we have these piling up of terms. Wisdom, verse 19. Understanding, verse 20. Knowledge. Okay. Now notice what He says in verse 21. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Let not these, these truths, these words that I am telling to you now, this Word of God, let it not vanish from your sight. And this makes sense, right? That wisdom is closely connected with God's Word because if God is wisdom, and He is, then whenever God speaks, He speaks what? He speaks wisdom. And therefore, everything that He says is wisdom. So the place where we find wisdom is not in the deepest mines of the earth or by observing the molecular structure of a duck-billed platypus. We find wisdom where God has spoken in the clearest way. He's spoken to us in many times, in many ways, over, over the past ages. But now Hebrews 1 tells us that He has spoken to us through His Son. And His Son, Jesus Christ, is revealed to us most clearly in His Word. And so we should recognize that the only way that we can see wisdom is that if we go to His Word. And it is God that has to show it to us. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says, "...that which is known about God is evident to them," that is, all creation, "...because God has made it evident to them." The reason we know anything about God, the only way we can know anything about the Scriptures, is if God makes it evident to us. So that means that wisdom is both sourced in God, that it comes from Him, and it's also distributed from God. It's distributed by God. If you want wisdom, you have to get it from God. And so what Job's message here is that, that wisdom is to fear God and to turn from evil. There may be a limit to our wisdom, but not with God's. And so we must pursue wisdom and trust that God knows what is best for us. That's what Proverbs chapter 2 is all about. We need to focus on Him because He can be trusted. And we go back to the theme that seems to keep coming up in the book of Job, and that is that we often suffer. We sometimes understand, but we always must trust God. We suffer often. We sometimes understand, but we always must trust God. And so that means we need to continually turn to God for wisdom. In times of confusion, in times of struggle, in times of trial, we need to turn to God. second question I want to ask with regard to the book of Job. Let me have you turn back to Job chapter 30. second question is, what's the difference between the grumbling of Job 
and the grumbling of Israel in Numbers. Do you remember when the people of Israel were on the edge of Canaan? They had been wandering in the wilderness for several decades. Moses sends 12 spies to the edge of Canaan to to spy it out and see what, what they have to go up against. And they come back, 10 of them, with a negative report because they didn't trust God to give them the land. And all the people agreed with this negative report. They said, yeah, you're right. We're not going to be able to stand up against these guys. All of these giants in the land and all these people who have been trained in battle, we haven't been. We've been wandering around for, for 40 years. And before that, we were slaves. How could we possibly win against these people who are trained in battle? And what was the result of that grumbling that happened in Israel? Everyone who was 20 years of age and older were going to die in the wilderness. That is, that God would not allow them to see this promised land now. And it was because they followed these ten spies' negative report. Why have you brought us here to die in the wilderness, Moses? We would have rather died in slavery in Egypt. Okay, so so this is what I'm trying to compare what Job is doing to or contrast. What's the difference? Job seems to be grumbling and overall, God commends him. But why are the people of Israel condemned? Listen to God's response to the people of Israel. Numbers 14. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Now, consider Job. He didn't expect to live. He doesn't expect God to restore his possessions and health and he grumbles seemingly against God. Look at chapter 30, verse 23. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. Look at chapter 31, verse 23. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of His majesty I can do nothing. What's the difference? What sanctifies Job's response? What makes it acceptable before God and Israel unacceptable? Well, first of all, we must recognize that God never promised health and prosperity to Job. Okay, so think about the two differences here. With Job, he was not promised health and prosperity. And so if God had promised that, and Job said, no, I don't believe you. I don't believe I'm going to get health and prosperity in this life, and so I quit. That would be wrong of him. Or for him to grumble instead of quit. He, he, he grumbles against God. God would say, you're turning away from me. I've promised you these things. But God didn't promise those things, did He? With Israel, isn't it a bit different? Wasn't Israel promised something and they turned away from what was promised because they didn't think God could follow through on that promise? God said, I will give you this land if you will obey me. And yet they denied Him. They became apostates. They turned from the living God. So the first thing we need to recognize is that we're talking about two different situations. The second thing that we need to understand 
is that the grumbling of Israel was a sin of unbelief. In other words, they were not believers. The ones who did not believe that God could take them into the promised land were unbelievers. With Job, was he a believer? Absolutely. So we're talking about the grumbling of apostates, unbelievers, and the grumbling of a believer. Job didn't go so far as Israel did. He didn't curse God and die like his wife told him to do. So we're talking about two different types of promises and we're talking about two different categories of people. Listen to what Dr. Don Carson says about this. He says, God does not blame us, talking about believers, if in our suffering we openly vent our despair and confess our loss of hope, our sense of futility, or lament about life itself. For us to just simply state our feelings to God, how we are feeling about the situations, God is not going to condemn us. Have you not read the Lament Psalms? There are 65 in total, many of them written by the, uh, the great father David. The key to understanding those Psalms is to recognize that they always turn people to trust in God. They begin with this despair and, and, and this heartache before God and saying, why are these things this way, God? And they always turn to the end. And I will trust you, God. I will turn to you. And this is what Job does. In his grumbling, he does not turn away from God. Do you see the difference? In Israel's grumbling, they wanted to turn away from God. I want to go back to Egypt and give up on you because this following of you is not working. For Job, he's saying, I'm turning to you, God. What are you doing? I want to have an answer. Now, Carson goes on to say, of course, we can say wrong things in our grief. But, within certain boundaries, it is far better to be frank about our grief, candid in our despair, honest with our questions, than to suppress them and wear a public front of puffy piety. God knows our thoughts. However bitter our complaint to God, our stance will still be that of a believer trying to sort things out, not a cynic trying to brush God off. That's the difference. We are a believer, if we're following Job's example, we are a believer trying to sort things out. What are you doing on this earth, God? I'm searching your ways for your wisdom. We're not trying to brush Him off, saying you don't exist, this is not working, I'm done with you. So what we learn from Job's lamenting and his frustrations is that we must never go as far as Israel did and curse God. We must never give up on life altogether. We may have overwhelming frustrations at times, but we should never accuse God of wrongdoing. This is where Job begins to cross the line, by the way. He does vent his frustrations, his despair. He says what's on his heart. But when he, cross, he crosses the line when... He says, God, you must give me an answer. Who are we to ask God or to demand from God an answer? It's as if we are the clay saying to the potter, why did you make me this way? And when you hear God speak in chapters 38 through 41, you will see much more clearly that Job was wrong to demand an answer. But for him to voice his despair was not wrong. 
God commends him for saying right things about about God, unlike his three friends. So we should follow Job's example when we are in times of despair as well. Let's pray. Father, the things of this life are difficult to sort out. How much more difficult when we are in times of suffering. Sometimes it's so difficult to see what You're doing when there is seeming darkness all around. When when we look around us, our nearsighted vision shows for us deep sickness, deep sorrow because of a loss of a loved one, frustrations over financial issues, frustrations over not not being able to follow You as we want to, and we, we wonder what You are doing. We wonder why these circumstances come into our life. And so it's hard to, to determine what true wisdom is, but we understand that You use suffering to do many things in our lives. One thing You do is You use it to teach us obedience. Even our Lord Jesus Christ had to suffer in order to learn obedience. So why would we be exempt from that? You use suffering to, to get the grip that we have on this world off of it and onto You. You use suffering to help us to reflect on Your mercy and our need for You. You use suffering to strengthen our faith. And although we don't wish it on anyone, nor do we wish it upon ourselves, we do recognize it's all part of Your good plan. And that You can be glorified even in our suffering. And that we can say with the psalmist, that if it were not for affliction, we would not have clung to Your Word. We would not have known Your Word. So while we don't wish it upon ourselves, we do see benefit from it. And we pray that You'd help us to be loving to those who are suffering now. Those who are working through difficult times in their lives. Sometimes things that seem overwhelming pray that You'd help us to be merciful to them. Not to come down and condemn them like Job's three friends did, even though he was suffering innocently. But to recognize that there are some things in this universe that we cannot understand. We cannot have all the answers. If it were up to us, we would put You in a box and be able to pull You out whenever we wanted and be able to have all the answers to all of the questions that come up. But You are much more infathomable than that. Your ways are unknown to us in many ways. And so we must trust You in times where the answers are not given. And many times in our suffering, we don't have the answers. And so we pray that You'd help us to trust You. We thank You that Jesus suffered the greatest thing that we possibly could that is your wrath so that we would not have to and that we know from the New Testament that we cannot be separated from your love if we are in Christ Jesus and that all this suffering is meant to accomplish good in us 
doesn't mean that it is good, but that it will accomplish good. And so we pray that You'd help us to trust You in it. And we pray that as we continue our study in this book, that we will be able to see Your glory and Your greatness for what it is and be able to respond in worship to You because of how You work even in the most difficult times to, to spread Your fame to accomplish Your purposes in this world, to magnify Your glory. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.